All right. Ooh, that's loud. Okay. Well, why don't you begin to be finding a seat? And there's a few scattered around where the kids have vacated. So if you didn't have a seat um, during the worship time, you should be able to find one now. There's a few down here. Depends if you like looking at my left ear or my right ear or my face. You get a choice. <laughs> you get a choice. All right. Well, we are quickly coming to the end. I'm, I'm just aware I'm going to trip over one of these at some point. but So that should be added entertainment for you. We're quickly coming to the end of Mark's Gospel. Yeah, the two rocks. Uh, and uh, see which one I'd fall at, stumble over. Um, we've got the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is quickly coming upon us as we go through this Gospel. And uh, last time we looked at the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw how Jesus took the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's blessing. And at the end of that passage, we saw Judas coming into the garden with a crowd of people armed with swords and clubs as though somehow he thought that Jesus was going to be defending himself violently and with swords himself. And uh, he goes up, does Judas, doesn't he? And he goes and he kisses Jesus. The kiss of death, that's where that expression comes from, the kiss of death. Um, telling the guards this is Jesus and then they were able to arrest him. Um, but Jesus, of course, wasn't, wasn't about fighting back. He wasn't a violent revolutionary. He wasn't leading a revolution in the way that other people might tend to lead revolutions, replacing the people in charge with other people in charge, um, but keeping the same agenda of money and power and politics. Jesus is bringing about a completely new administration. He's bringing about the kingdom of God, a kingdom where service and sacrifice and love reign, where weakness and suffering and rejection are top of the list. It's a new way of bringing things about. And so Jesus gets arrested. And now we have a scene where he gets taken before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. Um, and Peter follows, and he sits by the fire where the temple guards Ah, so it's a story contrasting two rocks. Christ the rock, the foundation stone of the church, as 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 describes him, and Peter the rock. Peter, the name given to him by Jesus, he was Simon before that, and Jesus said, you are Peter the rock, meaning rock. And he says, on this rock, on the confession of his faith, I will build my church. One rock, Jesus, we're going to see, is solid. One rock is crumbling under pressure. So why don't we read the first part of this. We're going to split the passage into two. Um, so we'll read about Jesus first, and then we'll read about Peter. So we're going to read from Mark 14. If you've got a Bible, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, reading from verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. 
Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. <coughs> then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. All right. Jesus is taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And even though it's past midnight, uh, the Sanhedrin gathered the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law. They come and they sit in kind of a semicircle around him and they judge him. Uh, it wasn't actually legal for them to do that at that time. It was during Passover. They weren't allowed to meet during Passover and gather and pronounce uh, and, and put people on trial. They weren't allowed to meet at night by their own rules, but they decided, well, this is a this is an opportunity that we've got to deal with this Jesus, and uh, they seize the opportunity. So Peter, meanwhile, goes into the courtyard, and despite fleeing earlier, along with all the rest of the disciples, he's trying to make good on his promise not to desert Jesus. You remember Jesus said, you know, even if all desert you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And so he's trying to make good on that promise, and so he's following, even though there's a risk to himself, to his own life, He's following Jesus. His intentions were good. It was risky. And he goes and he sits with the guards who are waiting to arrest Jesus. And he warms himself by the fire. And uh, as the fire's there and he's warming himself, surely his face is getting lit up by the fire. There's a possibility, of course, that he's going to get recognized. And we'll see later on that he did. So people come. And they start to testify against Jesus. People who are saying, well, you know, I heard Jesus say this. I saw Jesus say this. But their testimonies didn't agree. They were all coming with different stories. They were all having different things that they had against him, but they contradicted each other. And I would imagine the hastily convened court and the high priest are going to get quite frustrated with this going on. What's going on? It's not clear. There's all this going on. And then some of them stand up and they say, well, we heard him say he would destroy uh, the temple uh, made with human hands, and in three days he's going to build another. Now, of course, Jesus had spoken to his disciples about the temple uh, just a few, uh, a few days earlier. Um, he, did, he was in the temple, and he looked up, and his disciples said, what an amazing structure, what amazing stones. And Jesus said, they're all going to get destroyed. There's going to be a day coming when none of them are here. And... Uh, and actually, that was the case. They were destroyed in A.D. 70 because he was going to be the new temple. In John chapter 2, 
he had spoken uh, about his body being the temple. And at that point, he said, and it's going to be destroyed, it's going to be crucified and raised again in three days. So there's two separate things going on. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. That's going to get destroyed. He's talking about his own body. It's going to be crucified and three days later raised again. So then this, temp this testimony that comes to the Sanhedrin is, oh, well, he said he's going to destroy this temple. Well, that's not quite what Jesus said. You see how the words that he's used have subtly got twisted. The enemy loves to do that. The enemy loves to do that. He loves to do it with us. He loves to do it in the church. He loves to take things that are said, take things that are done, subtly twist them so that they get recounted and they get used to turn each other, turn one another against each other. Did you hear? Did you hear that so-and-so said, said this and that? And then suddenly it's like, oh, did they? Did she say that? Oh. And then suddenly it gets received as being the truth. And then the enemy sows seeds of doubt and suspicion towards that other person. Rumors and hearsay are incredibly destructive, but they can be so, so subtle. Rumors breed fears, breed anxieties, which become suspicion, which begins to take root and take form, and they get passed on as fact. And gradually hurt and mistrust and bitterness can spread through God's people. And we believe something about someone which isn't actually true. And we hold it against people in our hearts. It can easily happen. Terry Virgo talks about this when he looks at the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. And uh, I'm I'll tr no way I'm going to be able to tell it as well as he can. Uh, he's very funny when he does it. But he, he says, look, in, in the story of Gideon, Gideon, there's this small army. You remember how God whittles down the army and he says, you know, you've got too many people, you've got too many people. I want it to just be a small army so that it can display that it's me who's won the battle for you. So they go into battle with just these 300 people and, uh, and Gideon leads them in that. And he says, look, we're going to go in to battle and all we've got are trumpets and jars with a torch in with a light in um, in the other hand. So trumpets and torches, that's all we've got, and we're going to go in and we're going to defeat the Midianites. And what they do, he says, you go into the camp, blow the trumpets in unison. It's very important to be doing something in unison, doing something together as one people, and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So that's what they're to do. And the, and the story tells us that that is exactly what they did. And the Midianites thought that they were being attacked with people all around, all this noise going on, the trumpets, and so they fled. But Terry said, well, what could it have been like? Because if you read in the, in the passage, Gideon says, shout a sword for the Lord and... No, he doesn't say that. That's me getting that wrong. Gideon says, shout for the Lord and for Gideon. But what it says they actually shouted is a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. If you read the passage in Judges 6, I think, um, that's what it says. So you can imagine, Terry says, the people going into battle and they're shouting and they're shouting, for the Lord and for Gideon, for the Lord and for Gideon, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then someone's like, a sword? Sword for, Gi for Gideon? A sword for Gideon? Gideon's got a sword? Well, we've not got a sword. He's just sent us into battle with, with a trumpet and a lamp. Gideon's got a sword. 
Well, he's looked after himself okay, hasn't he? Well, Gideon. Yeah, he sends us into battle, and he's the one with the sword. You see, what can happen is that disunity, suspicion, and doubt can start to take hold. And the disunity would have spread, and the battle would have been lost. True unity refuses to believe rumors without checking them out and determining what the truth actually is. And we've all got to decide together to do that as a church. We're not going to listen to rumors. We're not going to listen to suspicions. If we hear something that concerns us, go and ask. Go and check it out. Find out the truth for yourself. Think well of each other so that we're unified as we're going into all that we're going into. So rumors, suspicion, hearsay, that was happening with Jesus. Jesus was being falsely accused of saying something that he never actually said. Now, what's Jesus' response to this? What's his response to this accusation about, about the temple? Does he say, oh, no, 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 I didn't actually say that. What I said was this. What I said was this about this temple, and what I said was actually talking about my body. The Bible says no. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't defend himself. He's silent. That's actually the best and the most godly way to deal with things when we are slandered, unless the well-being of the church is at stake. In Numbers 12, we read about Moses being criticized and slandered by his brother and sister, by Aaron and by um, Miriam. And they're complaining about him and, and the person he's married. And uh, he, he doesn't defend himself. The, the text says Moses was the most humble person that had ever lived. It, it always makes me smile, does that verse, because apparently Moses wrote that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Moses was the most humble person <laughs> that had ever lived. Anyway, what it, what it was meaning is he didn't, he didn't defend himself. He didn't start saying, hey, wha- who are you? I'm the leader of this group of people. You aren't supposed to be criticizing me. No, he didn't say anything. He let God justify him. And God did justify him. And God called them all out of the tent. And God punished um, Aaron and Miriam. Miriam gets covered in, uh, in, in leprosy, I think. Um, God steps in. When we're slandered, and when we're unjustly accused of something, we don't have to feel that we have to set the record straight because God is the God who justifies us. God will vindicate us. God knows. Isaiah 53 and verse 7 says about Jesus, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So Caiaphas is getting more and more frustrated with the situation of all this contradicting testimony. So he stands up and he says, look, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And at that point, Jesus speaks and he says, I am. Now that wasn't just Jesus saying, yep, that's me. He was using the words that were the very name of God. Again, going back to Moses when he met him at the bush. And he said, take your feet off. Uh, take, your, take your feet off. <laughs> take, your sh- take your sandals off. 
you're standing on holy ground. And he says, I am. I am. And that's his name. So Jesus uses that word, and everyone would have been shocked. <gasps> Jesus is claiming to be God himself. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is saying, really, is he's saying to this court of people who are supposedly judging him, he's saying, you might think you're judging me, but there's going to be a day when I'm going to come and we'll be judging you. Because Jesus is the judge. What terrible words for them to hear. But they were spiritually deaf and they couldn't hear them. Many people think that they're making judgments about Jesus. Perhaps you've been in that position before. Perhaps you're in that position now. You're thinking, well, who is Jesus? What is, what is, what is, who is this guy, Jesus? What, what was it that he said? What was it that he did? Who is he? They're good questions to ask. But if we start judging critically, if we start judging harshly, we must be careful. Because the Bible says one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to return in judgment. Now there's still hope. There's still hope if we soften our hearts, if we recognize that Jesus did die for us to bring us life and forgiveness, if we bow before him as king. Because that song that we were singing even today, the lion and the lamb, says one day every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Yes, every knee will bow. And many will bow in worship of Jesus. And some will bow because they've recognized who he is. And they've never worshipped him. And their hearts are still hard, but they have to bow. Because he is the Lord. He is the Lord. So the high priest tears his clothes and says, You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? Never mind Jesus' judgment. What is your judgment? What's your judgment on this man? And it says they all condemn, condemn him to death. And they begin spitting on him. And then they blindfold him. And they strike him. And they challenge him to prophesy. Who struck you then? Come on. Which one was striking you? Even then, Jesus didn't retaliate. Even then, he took it. Even as they struck him, they were fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 50, which says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will then bring charges against me. Jesus didn't retaliate. And then the guards took him. And it says they continued to beat him. Through all of this intense interrogation and beating and mocking, Jesus, the rock of our salvation, did not crack. He didn't crack. He was solid. He would become the foundation stone that was prophesied. And how was it that he didn't crack? How was he able to stand in the face of all this? Well, because he wasn't standing alone. He was standing 
in relationship with God the Father. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Now there was going to be a time that soon came where for the first time ever he would be separated from that when he would say, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Because he's had to bear the punishment for our wrath. But right now, even in the midst of all of this, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's got a relationship with God his Father. In John 7, 37 to 38, we read, On the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's when people remember the time of traveling in the wilderness with Moses, and they were thirsty, and Moses struck the rock at Mount Horeb, and water flowed out. And on that day, at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood up and he said, Let everyone, anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture is saying, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And it says he was speaking of the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying they went to the rock for water. You come to me. I'm the rock. I'm the rock. Come to me and streams of living water will flow out. The Holy Spirit. And as Jesus the rock was struck and as he died on the cross to forgive us, and restore our relationship with God the Father, the Holy Spirit was soon to be poured out for us so that we too can stand. And the Holy Spirit is available for us today. But as John's Gospel said, right then, the Spirit hadn't been poured out. And so we see Peter, and we see in Peter a contrast to Jesus. Jesus, full of the Spirit, able to stand. Peter, standing in his own strength. He's very much a cracked and crumbling rock. Let's read from verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I, I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow's one of them! And again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you're one of them! You're a Galilean! He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about! Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is Peter's lowest moment. This is the lowest of the low for Peter. He goes into the courtyard. He's full of good intentions. He's not going to desert his friend. He's not going to let him down. But he hasn't got the strength to carry out the intentions that he's got. So instead, as Jesus faces the fire of his interrogation, Peter warms himself by the fire of the guards who are waiting to take Jesus away. And then as Jesus is being interrogated, Peter's also interrogated. In no way as strongly as Jesus is, but they're both being interrogated. You, you were with that Nazarene. You're one of them. You, you speak like one of them. You're a Galilean. You're one of them. Peter's response is so different to Jesus' response. Peter didn't remain silent. Instead, he began to deny it. 
Instead, he begins to lie and protest. And his lying and his protestations get louder and louder, starting off with, I don't know what you're talking about. And it says he ends up calling down curses and swearing, I don't know this man you're talking about. And his denials and his anger show his weakness and his fear. Even though he wants to stand with Jesus, he desperately wants to stand with Jesus. He said he would, but he can't. And he ends up siding with the rest of the crowd. He's not with me. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not with him. He sides with the crowd who are never going to accept him. When we face laughter and taunts and mocking for knowing Jesus, maybe at school, perhaps in our workplace, maybe even amongst friends. It's easy to want to deny him. It's easy to want to fit in with the crowd. If we know Jesus, we'll never be accepted by them. Instead, we need to be filled with the Spirit of Christ so that we too can stand. We can't do it in our own strength. However much we feel we want to, however, no, we'll never give in. We need the Spirit of God. Luke gives us more detail in his account of the din of uh, in his gospel account. He says, as Peter was denying Jesus for the final time, said Jesus was being led out of the interrogation, beaten, bloody. So just at the moment that Peter shouts and swears his denial, I don't know this man you're talking about. At that very moment, the rooster crows. And Jesus turns and looks Peter in the eye. And Peter remembers how Jesus had said, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to disown me three times. And it says he just wept. Peter just wept. Here's Peter, the one who Jesus said, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And it's just crumbled and cracked and fallen apart. Failed. Failed. It's like the end. Paul talks about it. He talks about how weak we are before we know the new birth that comes through Christ how weak we are before we're filled with the Spirit. He says this in Romans 7. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but then I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? And then he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like Peter, we are cracked and broken. We're unable to do what we know we should do. We're unable to do what we want to do. We're wretched. We need a savior. We need someone to save us. Who's going to save us? Who's going to deliver us from this situation that we're in? Only Christ. Only Christ. 
We have to learn it for ourselves. If we try and live our lives outside of Christ, outside of God, standing on ourselves, confident in our own ability, it's not going to work. It's going to fall. It's going to fail. It's going to crumble. If we don't stand on the solid rock, we'll crumble and fall. That's what Jesus himself said, didn't he, when he talked about the two houses and the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand. He said, when the wind and the waves come, the one who built his house on the sand gets washed away. Unless we build on Jesus, on the solid rock, trusting in him, obeying him, listening to his words, it will all fall. We've got to stand on Christ's strength. Brent's been preaching it in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Hudson Taylor was uh, a missionary uh, in the last century, and he said this. He said, God chose me because I was weak enough. He trained someone be quiet enough and little enough and then he uses him that's what God wants to do he wants us to understand how weak we are he wants to quieten our noise and our brashness and our boasting of ourselves not think highly of ourselves and then he says and if you give yourself to me I'm going to use you there was a man called Armando Valadares, who's still alive today, and he was a political prisoner in Cuba. He spent 22 years in Fidel Castro's prisons for refusing to say, I'm with Castro, and to deny his faith in Jesus. He said if I'd have spoken those three words, he would have been released from prison at any time, but he refused to say it. And he spoke about how he heard Christian prisoners in Cuba who were facing the firing squads, and he said regularly they would go out and shout, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King, as they were being executed. And he said the, the guards ended up, the, the authorities ended up gagging them before they were executed, he said, because they wanted to make sure that the guards didn't stop and think too much about what they were seeing and what they were hearing. How can you do that? How can people do that to face death? And even at the moment of death, shout, long live Christ the King. Only if you're dependent completely on Christ. Only if our trust's in him. Only if we're full of the Spirit. Peter himself realized it too, later on in his life. After the resurrection, we see that the story doesn't end up where it seems to be. This lowest moment wasn't the end of the story for Peter, was it? After the resurrection, Jesus... Peter goes out and he goes out fishing and Jesus says he catches nothing. Jesus says throw the net on the other side. He catches 153 fish. These chairs that you're sitting on, there's 153 of them by the way. That's why. 153 fish. And then he, and then he calls him onto the beach and he lovingly restores him. He lovingly restores him. And he says, do you love me, Peter? Because you know what? It's not about what you can do. It's not about how strong you are. 
It's about, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter says, I, you know I love you. Okay. Well, in that case, I've got work for you to do. Feed my sheep. Take care of my flock. That's what it's about. And that's what Peter did. He's restored. He's full of the Spirit. And he says in 1 Peter second, First Peter 2, verse 23, he says this about Jesus himself. Same Peter. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. And you can almost imagine Peter saying, and so was I. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter repented. He turned to Jesus for forgiveness. He was used powerfully by God in building the church. And Matthew 27 tells us that in contrast, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, did not. Judas only felt regret. Judas didn't run to Jesus. Judas ran back to the religious leaders with his 30 pieces of silver, and he said, I've made a terrible mistake. I've made a terrible mistake. Please take this money back. He tried to make amends himself. He didn't run to the one who was the only one who could help him. And the religious leaders looked at him and just said, what's it got to do with us? <coughs> what's it got to do with us? It's your responsibility. And so we read that he threw the money in the temple and he went out and hanged himself. We can keep running to others. We can keep trying to figure things out ourselves. Or we can run back to Jesus. Because he'll restore us. He'll welcome us. He'll say, do you love me? In which case, you're forgiven. You're restored. Be filled with my spirit. And be go out and tell the world about me. So what about us? Our good intentions, trusting in our own strength and ability won't be enough to follow Christ. We'll crack under pressure. We'll crumble. The only way is to come again and again and again to Jesus and stand on him, the solid rock. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, sinking sand. We stand on him. We drink the living water. We drink the Holy Spirit who's poured out for us. We can do it. We can do it because he stood for us. He did what Peter couldn't do. He did what we can't do. But thanks be to God who delivers us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why don't the band come back up? And why don't we stand together? I'll just pray. Father God, when we, when we see what it was that Jesus went through, when we begin to read these, these passages which outline how the one that we love faced such hatred, such opposition, how he was wrongly accused, how he was beaten and mocked and spat upon, 
but yet how he stood, how he did not respond. He didn't open his mouth. And Lord, we realize so often we want to jump in when people accuse us, when people falsely say things about us. We want to defend ourselves. We want to be in there and justify ourselves. Oh, Lord, we come to you. Thank you, you're the God who justifies. Thank you, you're the one who stands with us. Thank you, you're the one who vindicates. Thank you that we can know that as we stand in you, you will come to us. You will fill us with your spirit. You'll give us the ability to stand. You'll keep restoring us. You'll keep forgiving us. Thank you, Lord. What great love. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we worship together?